This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today, I'm going to be talking with Glenn Cole. Uh, You remember him from a previous episode where we talked about perfection. Do you have to be perfect to get into heaven? Today, we're going to be talking about false dichotomies. Should be very interesting. I hope it is. But before we get into that, I want to remind you that if you want to send me a message, if you have any questions or comments or want to correct anything that I've said, feel free to contact me at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. I'll be glad to hear what you have to say and maybe even talk about it in a future episode. So now I want to welcome Glenn. Hello, Glenn. Thank you for being here. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back. This is uh, hopefully going to be a lot of fun for the listeners. It's always fun for me, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I do appreciate your podcast, so I'm glad to be on. Thanks. I paid him to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that'll get edited out. We'll see. So today we're going to talk about false dichotomies, and the reason we're talking about this is Glenn and I had had this conversation before, and then we realized, well, this would be a good topic for one of these episodes, because believers around the world often are taught things that are not really true, or we accept things that we've heard without really thinking deeply about it. So we're going to touch on some of those things today. Glenn, how about you tell us uh, what a dichotomy is and then what a false one is? Yeah, that's a good place to start. A a dichotomy is simply two things that are in contrast with each other. Either they're opposites or they're opposite enough to where you can set them off against each other. And you can think about a dichotomy, uh, di meaning two, but one natural dichotomy uh, that we often think about is a woman is either pregnant or she's not. So it's, it's either one or the other. If you're in a room without windows and there's no light, it's either dark, or when you turn the light on, it's light. It's either dark or light. It can't be both. And so these dichotomies, it usually means it's one thing or it's another. And the statements are usually given to prove a point or make a point as we talk about things that are dichotomous, that are opposite of each other. But the problem is within Christianity, when we get these statements, they can seem to be either or, but the truth of the matter is, is that they're often both and. And uh, I know that especially in America, we are so driven by slogans and by short little statements that we can hang our hats on, that we can hold on to, that these kinds of statements within Christianity really gain a lot of traction. And the, the point, Mike, when you and I first started talking was not to make fun of anybody who has believed a false dichotomy or who repeats a false dichotomy, but it's just to point out how these things can get into our conversations and how we can believe a short statement like this when there's actually more behind it. So mm-hmm. that's one reason why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah, good. And and I want to underscore a couple of things, that a dichotomy usually implies the word or between these two things. And something that's not a dichotomy would have the word and between these two things. And I have a thought here too, human beings tend to be tribal we want to choose sides. We want to be in this camp or in the other camp. And certainly the world presses us in many ways to make a decision. Are you with us or with them? Um, even in sports, are you for this team or against that team or whatever? And that creeps into the church 
So today we're going to talk about some of these common false dichotomies, kind of where they came from, and um, what the truth is, really, how they're false dichotomies as opposed to true. And so what's the first one that you have on mind? Well, the first one, when you and I first started talking about this, the one that I had uh, in the front of my mind was a very popular statement. It's been around for a while, but it's that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And it can be said in different ways. Christianity is a relationship. It's not a religion. Uh, you can flip those around. But the basic premise is that Christianity is not a religion, but that it is a relationship. Yeah, and so there's that or in there, a religion or a relationship. Yeah, one of the problems is, especially if people are not familiar with Christianity, and if you are talking with people about the faith, you're talking to them about Christ, uh, sometimes it's tempting to tell these people the great thing about Christianity is that it's not a religion, it's a relationship with God. And that much is absolutely positively true, that Christianity is about our relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, with God the Father, and with God the Holy Spirit. And so there is the relationship part of that. The issue is, is that the statement Christianity is not a religion is what is false about this dichotomy. It's setting up religion against relationship, and the truth is, is that Christianity is both. It's both a religion and it's a relationship. It's a religion that's based on a relationship with God, but there are certainly religious principles. Now, let me back up a second and say that this phrase... Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, was originally coined to distinguish Christianity from other works-based religion. In other words, the things that we have to do in order to please God. So what this statement came up as was uh, Christianity is not a religion in which you have to do something in order to please God. It's who you believe in. And so that's how it got started, but it just got shortened. It's not a religion. It's a relationship, but the truth is, is that it's both and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I had an example of this very thing yesterday. I was listening to another podcast, Two Christians Talking, and one of the fellows said that said something about his religion or about his expression of religion, and the other guy corrected him and said, no, it's not religion. It, you're talking about your faith, because Christianity's not a religion. You're talking about your faith. And the first guy said, well, the Bible does talk in positive terms about religion, Christianity being a religion. And as you and I started talking about this a while ago, I realized I'd bought into some of that thinking as well. I mean, Christianity is definitely a religion. However you want to define religion, it's the aspiration or the reaching between God and man, following eternal truths, seeking out eternal truths. So it is a religion. And actually, I think maybe now's a good time for me to read where in the scriptures we do have a positive statement about religion. This is in James, James chapter 1, right at the end. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So he does say that there is a, a worthless religion. Interesting, the marker of that is not being able to control your tongue, not being <laughs> a, just, you know, learning when to shut up and not speak. Uh, that's interesting that that's his marker. But there is a religion that God accepts 
and it's a pure and good religion, and it's helping people in their distress. And also I want to say, because I've been involved in orphan ministry a lot, people will often quote verse 27, only half of it. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And they'll put a period at the end of that. There's more. (laughs) There's more, right? And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And that's a real important part of what it is to follow the Lord, is to fight hard not to get polluted by the world. But here's the answer to this. Is Christianity a religion or a relationship? It's not a religion. It's a relationship. Well, it is a religion. And it's a religion that God accepts as pure and faultless. Of course, when we think about religion, we tend to think about it's just these practices that we engage in, whether it's going into a sanctuary and lighting candles to, uh, to remember someone or whatever, the different practices. And that's what we tend to think about as a religion, and that's true. But we as Christians are also given certain practices to follow, and that's one way in which we do keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. When the first believers came on the scene, and you read this in Acts 2, what happens is that they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, to the breaking of the bread, and to the fellowship. So all of these are religious practices, but they're they're practices that we engage in because of the relationship that we have with Christ. And one of the the key, actually two, uh, if we think about some of the sacraments, two of the key things that we are given is taking communion. Receiving of communion is a religious practice, as is baptism. So these things are given to us, uh, and that's part of our religion, but it's based on the relationship that we have with Christ. And so this is a a both-and statement. So to say Christianity is not a religion is false. To say that it's only a relationship, well, that's not true as well. Yeah, and I'll underscore Jesus himself. When he instituted the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or communion, he said, do this as often as you will. So there's an imperative there. He wants us to participate in that religious activity as a remembrance of him, of his death, and who he is. Yeah, and I think the final thing that I would say about this, and just in terms of religious practices, is that it is true that these practices are not what make us right before God. Yes, These practices are what we do because of the fact that Christ has justified us and and redeemed us and saved us. And so we do these practices both to remember, but also uh, to participate in the life that God has given us. Yeah, amen. That is so, so important, that God doesn't call us to be better so that we can get close to Him. He calls us to draw close to Him so that we'll be better. And the things that we do are a recognition of what He's already done in our life and our love for Him and His love for us. Well, what's next on this list? I think the next one that we can talk about, Mike, is the difference between doctrine and love. I'll hear people say frequently, uh, don't talk to me about doctrine. Doctrine divides, but love unites. And so that's kind of the statement. It's said in different ways, mm-hmm. uh, depending on who's doing the speaking. But uh, doctrine divides, love unites is another, another one of these dichotomies. And so what you don't hear in that is that word or, but it these things are made to sound like opposites. Doctrine and love yeah, like are set up as opposites. Ex- yeah, like one excludes the other that if you're living in love, then you're not going to pay much attention to doctrine because doctrine is dry and lifeless, Yeah, would right. be the idea. Yeah, and the first thing, in case people are confused, Scripture 
talks about the word doctrine, and it simply means teaching or instruction. It comes from a Greek word, didaskalia, uh, that simply means a teaching or instruction. So if it works better for you, whenever you read in Scripture the word doctrine, just to think about teaching, that is perfectly fine. So if you were to say that teaching divides, but love unites, it sounds a little different, because doctrine has gotten that connotation within a lot of people that it's it's old, it's dry, it's dusty, just like you were saying. Mm-hmm. And so that is the thing that we need to cast off because it's all about love. Yeah, well, and honestly, there's something about human nature. We just don't like being told what to do. And when you have a strong, direct teaching, there's a part of our rebellious nature that says, well, I'm going to reject that because it's constraining me. And so people can also lay that on the word doctrine and say, well, I don't like doctrine because it just feels old and stodgy and it's not letting me be free and do what I want to do. I do appreciate what you just said is that it's a translation of this word that can stick with us and cause people to think differently about it. It's also true of other words that have been translated And they keep this word doctrine, it sounds like old-fashioned, old, dead religion. And if we just translate it a little differently, then it becomes more acceptable, like teaching or instruction. And the statement, uh, doctrine divides, is actually true, because doctrine does divide. We're told in Mm -hmm. Scripture that we need to hold on to sound doctrine or sound teaching. And the same could be said of any type of instruction that you receive, uh, whether you're in school, if you're uh, taking mathematics, for instance, and somebody says two plus two is five, well, we know that is false. But if somebody tries to present that and say, you're just being mean uh, (laughs) and not loving, I want to believe two plus two is five. But we say, but that's not true. So is that being loving to point out the falsehood of that? And that's the same thing we have in scriptural doctrine. There are things that are true, and then there are things that are not. And maybe a scripture verse that could help uh, when we think about this doctrine dividing. In Titus 1.9, Titus is encouraged, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Mm -hmm. And I think the rebuking is what some people have issues with. Well, in this culture, and I've mentioned this several times on the podcast, We live in a culture that is often driven by emotion, and when we're corrected, it doesn't feel good. Right. And so if it feels bad for somebody to correct something wrong, then we say that person isn't being loving because our feelings are hurt, and that's this priority in this particular culture on our emotions. Scripturally, in God's sight, we've got to walk in truth. We have to speak the truth in love. It's both and. But nowadays, if somebody gets corrected, so much of the culture is built around do what feels good to you, do your own thing. Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? Well, of course, you can say that to somebody, but you can't say that to God. You can't say, who are you to correct me? Also, just before we continue on, I was just thinking about when Paul said to Timothy, persevere in your life and your doctrine, or he's saying, persevere in your life and your teaching, because... When you do both of those things, then you're going to save yourself and the people who hear you. We as believers are encouraged to persevere in right teaching. Yeah, and maybe an example that goes to an extreme could help uh, if we think about doctrine divides. If somebody comes to us as a Christian and says, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead, that 
belief, that teaching, that is a doctrine. If somebody says Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, that's a teaching, that is a doctrine. But what Scripture reveals is that, in fact, Jesus did rise from the dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the core, the basis of our faith. And so speaking the truth in love, we need to correct that teaching and say, no, that, that is not what Scripture says. And in that case, doctrine would divide us as believers, uh, and it's possible, I guess, that personally it could divide people if there's anger or uh, acrimony or whatever, uh, which is never the reason why you would correct somebody about their doctrine, but you would have to. You would have to correct that teaching uh, because we're told to in Scripture that we need to rebuke those who contradict the sound doctrine. And uh, the result sometimes is uh, that it divides people. But even Jesus said when he came that he came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword, that he would divide people. And the reason is, is that some would hold true to who he was and why he came, and some wouldn't. And that would Mm -hmm. naturally divide those people. Yes, we shouldn't be a shouldn't be fearful or dismissive of those divisions because there is a time when you are really actually on one side or the other. It's either with the truth or not. Was Jesus raised from the dead physically or not? Well, he was, and that's that's the teaching that we receive. And historically, he was raised from the dead. And there are people who call themselves Christians who don't believe that, that think everything is just spiritual that he was spiritually born in our hearts or something like that. Or maybe that even he didn't really exist the way that the Bible talks about him. The, the Christ consciousness somehow is in the world, and this is all a myth, but that's just not true. Yeah, and while it's possible to love people who hold beliefs that are uh, counter to Scripture, uh, we certainly want to be loving and, and be civil, uh, but we can't say that we're united with those people. Uh, yeah. because we're, we're not united uh, in the doctrine that's been given to us. Yeah, so this false dichotomy, you mentioned a bumper sticker, love trumps doctrine. I saw this bumper sticker at a coffee shop here in Athens, and it just made me laugh out loud because, again, it's setting up love and doctrine against each other, that love trumps doctrine. And the funny thing is that the statement, love trumps doctrine, is a doctrine. It's a teaching. It's, a, it's an instruction. Well, right. And I'm sure people have heard this example. If somebody is running as fast as they can and they're about to run off a cliff to their death, is it unloving to tell them the truth of their situation? Right. Stop running. You've got to turn around and go back the other way. That might feel like a correction and might not be pleasant to them if they really want to run fast. But the loving thing is to tell the truth so that they'll be saved. Okay, so let's move on to the next thing on our list here. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and introduce that? Yeah, it's similar to the very first one we talked about, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And the statement you'll hear uh, sometimes is, don't go to church, be the church. And the point behind the statement is to understand that we as Christian believers are, we're called the body of Christ, uh, the Bride of Christ, we're ta- called the Temple of the Holy Spirit. We are an organism. Uh, we are made up of individuals, made up into one membership in the body. And so that notion to be the church is well taken. It's f- helpful for us to understand mm-hmm. that we're not just a loose gathering of people, uh, that we are the church, the church you know, coming from a word that just means those who are sent out, a gathered assembly, 
But the problem is, and why this is a false dichotomy, is when you hear that combined with don't go to church, but be the church. And again, I think the purpose, um, when this statement originally gained some traction, when it became popular, was not just don't go through the rituals. Don't go to a building just to go through the rituals, but you need to be what Christ has given us as the church. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is when you begin to say that statement over and over and over again, people get the idea, oh, I don't have to go anywhere. I can just be. I can just be the church wherever I am. But again, the issue, scripturally, we are told, do not give up assembling together. Don't give up the gathering of the body as some are in the habit of doing. So we're, we're told, we're given these things to do as we gather. So again, it's a both and. Mm-hmm. We should go to church, and the reason we go to church is because we are the church, and we, we uh, experience fellowship with each other uh, and in unison. We offer prayers, we listen to God's Word, etc. Yeah, and so one way to say it that comes to mind is in going to church, we are being the church. That's a part of what it is to be the church, is to gather together. I'll tell a little story that reflects on this too. I was a part of a small fellowship in Austin, Texas, and I've mentioned it before, and we had a motto. One of the ladies on the worship team taught Latin in high school, and so we thought we should have a Latin motto for this little inner city church, uh, which just seemed a little bit silly, you know. (laughs) But she and the leadership came up with this motto, this Latin motto, and it is, est populus non idificium, which means... It's people, est populus, non-idificium means not buildings. Right. So that was the focus that we had as a small fellowship. The church is people, it's not buildings. So we really do have to keep that in the front of our minds because it's very easy for folks that have gone to mainline traditional churches like I did when I was a kid. You thought just going to the church building on a Sunday morning and participating in certain rituals was actually what it was to be a Christian. I was talking to a lady, she was Scottish, she was an old lady, and I think she called herself a rock wall Presbyterian. I think that's what she called herself. I should have looked this up. But anyway, in Scotland, there was some persecution, and they were kicked out of their buildings, and so they met next to these rock walls because the wind and the rain was so strong that they would get up in the lee side or out of the wind and rain and huddle up against these rock walls, meeting outside. That was the only place they could meet as a church. So in that case, yeah, the church is not a building. The church was all these believers huddled around next to a rock wall. But still, if you say, don't go to church, be the church, that can in particular appeal to the American sense of individualism. I am my own person. I can stand on my own. I can live this Christian life without being a part of the body. And the scriptures are pretty clear. Even if you don't feel like you're part of the body, you are part of the body. That's right, yeah. Yeah, even if you feel like you're on the outside looking in, even if you feel certain ways, or if you're choosing to cut yourself off, you actually still are a part of the body of Christ. We need to be the church, and by being the church, we're going to attend services. We're going to attend services somewhere, and, and mm-hmm. you're right. It doesn't matter where the body gathers, where God's Word is proclaimed, where the sacraments are administered correctly, uh, that is where the church is, and it could be in a field, it could be in somebody's basement. It's just that we've designated these spaces in which we, as whatever church uh, you are, this is where we've agreed to gather on a weekly basis. It's tempting to attribute things that are holy to the place rather than Mm -hmm. to those who gather there. Yeah. 
uh, and I got I want to be careful because I don't want to unnecessarily uh, upset anybody about their particular church building because they could become so meaningful. It's why we have such strong attachments to the places we live. Uh, because in a lot of ways, we as the body of Christ live in these spaces together. Uh, we come together to worship uh, together, and so these buildings or spaces or wherever it might be, they can take on a very special meaning. And I, I think that's fine, as long as we understand that it's not wholly because of the place, it's because of who meets us where we gather. And we are holy because God declares us holy. The place is holy because God is there. Uh, God doesn't show up because the place is holy. Amen. And it reminds me of when the disciples looked up at the temple and said, oh, look at this great building. And they were talking to Jesus about how wonderful it was. And he said, you know, there's going to come a time when not one of these stones is going to be left on top of the other. At the moment, we're recording this inside a church building, an old church building, a hundred and something years old, maybe. Mm -hmm. But there'll come a time when not one of these boards is connected to the other. It's all going to rot and fall at some point. So we would say, what would we say instead of don't go to church, be the church? The expression of us being the church is that we gather as the church. And mm -hmm. that phrase, going to church, again, goes back to, I think some people have gotten a bad taste in their mouth over the years in terms of the religious expression. Just, you know, go there on a Sunday morning and you're fine. Uh, go through the rituals. But uh, yeah. I would say that the, the, the way that we express that we are the church is that we gather... And there are other things that we do as the church, but that's one of the things, mm -hmm. one of the first things that we're given to as the body is that we, we come together. We go to church. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, so now we come to the part of our podcast that we did last time as well. It was kind of funny, and I thought we ought to do it again this time. This is called In the Bible or Not. We're going to quote some sayings, and it's up to our listeners to decide or discern or guess is this in the Bible or not? So what's the first one there, Glenn? Well, the first one, these are always fun uh, for me because um, you just hear people say them as if they are biblical. And some of these are going to be biblical. You'll have to figure out which ones. But the first one is, hope springs eternal. Oh, sure. Hezekiah 3.16. I think that's exactly where it's found. <laughs> Actually, I, so people that have not listened before, you need to know that joke. There is no book of Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah 3.16 is a catch-all joke scripture reference that I and other people will use just to make it sound like the Bible is saying what we want it to say. So hope springs eternal in the Bible or not. And we need to figure out how to give somebody a gift if they actually guess all of these correct. <laughs> I'm not sure how you can do that, but yeah. I'll just offer some of your money uh, for them to, sure. to get. Yeah, so Hope Springs Eternal is actually a quote by Alexander Pope, and it's not found in the Bible. It certainly sounds scriptural, but the, the full quote is that hope springs eternal in the human breast. Man never is, but always to be blessed. And uh -huh. that's, that's where that part of that phrase so comes from. Not in, not in the, the Bible. Bible. All right, well, the next one is one of my favorites. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In the Bible or not? That's a pretty good one. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And it sounds like some sage <laughs> wisdom from... Yeah. Days gone past. I don't know. Yeah, if they do these things when the wood is green, 
Well, that is in the Bible. Luke chapter 23, verse 31. And let me start, I'll, actually I'll start reading a little bit earlier so we get some context for what Jesus said. As they led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Isn't that an interesting thing for Jesus to say? Yeah. That's a carpenter speaking. It's a man who's used to working with green wood and dry wood. Exactly. And what's, I think what he's saying here is, if men are doing these things to me now at the beginning of the last days, think what's going to happen at the end of time when the wood has had time to dry. Then people are going to be saying, blessed are women that don't have any children because their children aren't suffering. And in those days when the wood is dry, people are going to just call on the mountains, just kill us, cover us up, hide us from these terrible things. I think that's what he's talking about. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. Um, yep. The persecution that the church mm-hmm. endured, but also when the Roman soldiers came in and completely decimated uh, Jerusalem and drove everyone out of town. Yep. So that is in the Bible. If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? The next one is um, in the Bible or not? Well, I think we should first say that this is going to have some language that some people may not be familiar with. And it might be offensive to some people, too. It could be. But the statement is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the offensive part is the word ain't, because that's just not good English grammar. That's right. Well, I put that one in there just because I'm from the southern part of the USA, and you hear that all the time, but it may surprise you that is not in the Scriptures. Not in the Scriptures, and for those who are not familiar with this term, ain't, it is simply a a southernism for is not. If it isn't broke, don't fix it, but it's just easier to say if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's right. I mean, it's good advice. It is good advice. (laughs) But it it ain't in the Scripture. (laughs) Good. Good. Yeah. All right, what's next? All right, necessity is the mother of invention. Is this found in the Bible, maybe in the Proverbs somewhere? Necessity is the mother of invention. Proverbs chapter 43, I think. Is that right? That is close, (laughs) but you still missed it by a mile. No, this is actually a statement by the Greek philosopher Plato. Not Plato, like the stuff that you give kids to play with, but Plato. Necessity is the mother of invention, and it's funny that uh, some people think that this came from, you know, the 17 or 1800s, right? Uh, with the Industrial Revolution and everything else, and people uh, striking out west of, of the U.S. West when you know, they were expanding. Necessity is the mother of invention. But this is actually an incredibly old statement. Predates Jesus himself when he was walking the earth. Okay, so the next one is good one. I'll take this and I'll let you answer the question: in the Bible or not? A leopard can't change his spots. That may be a familiar aphorism for people. A leopard can't change his spots. Is that in the Bible or not? I used to hear this from my grandmother a lot, and so I was familiar with it from childhood. 
and I just always took it as, uh, as we say, the gospel truth, but I never knew where it came from. I mm-hmm. just thought uh, she grew up in East Tennessee, and that's where I thought she had gotten it. So is it in the Bible or not? So a leopard can't change his spots is actually in the Bible. It comes from uh, the prophecy in Jeremiah, from Jeremiah 13, 23. Uh, and I'll read the full statement just so you can hear where this comes from. can't really give the full context of the, the prophecy Jeremiah is writing, uh, but uh, he's warning about the nation of Israel being taken off into exile. And he says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. And so that uh, leopard can't change his spots. It's a paraphrase of Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. Yep, that was good. All right, so that was our game in the Bible or not. We'll do that again the next time we talk about something. Don't know when that'll happen. So next for false dichotomies. This is one... That is pretty common, I think. Well, certainly in my experience in church life, which is actually very narrow when you think about the last 2,000 years of church life. Right. But faith versus reason. Faith or reason. And I think uh, one thing that this comes up in conversation is that our faith is not based upon our reason, that our faith is blind faith. We just have to have hope. Uh, in Jesus, and that it's not based on reason, and that uh, along with this can go science, that science and faith can't go along together, that it's either one or the other. You either have faith in God or you believe in science. Mm -hmm. But the, the truth is, is that faith is based on reason, and when I say reason, it's based on reasonable assumptions. It's given to us in Scripture that our faith is not based on just, boy, I hope this is true. Mm-hmm. We have actual eyewitness testimony to these things that, that it is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're even told Peter at one point says in First Peter 3, uh, 15, uh, above all else, honor God, but always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you, but do it with gentleness and respect. And uh, that word reason um, that Peter uses there is where we get the term apologetics. Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you, to, mm-hmm. to be able to reason with people, this is why I believe what I believe. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, uh, boy, I, I sure hope this is true, but it's based on reason and fact. Our faith is reasonable in that sense. Yes. It's based on historic events. And it comes to mind an article written by an economist, and it's called An Economist's Rational Road to Faith in Christ. I think that's what it is. And he talks about how he was an atheist, and I think he's a professor, and he was surrounded by people who didn't believe in God at all. And he started rationally thinking through the claims of Jesus, the claims of the Bible, and it was a rational road to his faith in Jesus. And there are a lot of examples that uh, we mm-hmm. could bring up about this. There are lawyers and uh, police investigators who used to be atheists, but as they began to investigate the claims of Christianity, they came to find that they were true. C.S. Lewis, the, the British apologist and writer, you may be familiar with the books, the Chronicles of Narnia uh, and others, but uh, his story of coming to faith is one of reason. Uh, he began life more or less as an atheist and began to pursue uh, some type of philosophy that he could 
make sense of the world and the universe, and eventually, without going into all the detail of his life, he eventually came to the point where he did believe, because of the way he reasoned, he did believe that there was a God. And eventually, he came to faith in Christ and believed that, mm-hmm. uh, that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, it's funny, one of his statements was that he became a reluctant believer uh, came into mm-hmm. the kingdom of God kicking and screaming. <laughs> that that <laughs> yeah. his belief, he got to the point where he said, I can't believe anything else. So our faith is reasonable. As a matter of fact, we are commanded to love the Lord with all our heart and soul and our mind. When you make this false dichotomy, is it faith or reason, you're cutting out the loving the Lord with your mind. That's right. That we should be reasonable, thoughtful. And one thing I think we should say, just to make sure that we cover most of the bases here, is uh, we're not saying that we can reason ourselves into our faith, that faith, and it's taught in Scripture, faith is a gift of God, but it's not that we just believe in some kind of wispy, boy, I hope this is true kind of faith. There's a definite reason, uh, a reasonableness to our faith when we talk to people about it, because uh, in today's world, we will come up against people who uh, claim that there is no God or that Christianity is false, that it's all a myth, that you can't trust the New Testament documents and all of these kinds of reasons. But uh, the fact is, is that we can reason with these people um, to mm-hmm. show that our faith is true. And, mm-hmm. you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. And we are above all most to be pitied. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we should all just say, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Um, And he's making a reason. He's making an argument for our faith. Mm -hmm. And it's based on the resurrection of Jesus. And one that was easily refutable at his time. Oh, yeah. He was saying that there were more than 500 people alive when he wrote that had seen the risen Lord. So good. Okay, well, the last thing that I want to mention here, and this came to mind, I had a conversation a few days ago with a fella, and he talked about finding balance in his life. We were talking about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And he said something like, well, I guess it's just a matter of finding balance. And what came out of my mouth without really me thinking about it, but when I said it, it really felt true, and I believe it is true. The walk of a disciple is not a walk of finding a balance between things. It's a walk of obedience. Even when you say, I need to find a balance, you're saying, in effect, I've got to find a middle ground between these two things that sit sort of in opposition to each other or that you can't hold together fully. And yet when Paul says to Timothy, like I mentioned, persevere in your life and your doctrine, I don't think you want to find a balance between life and doctrine. In terms of you've got 50% life and 50% doctrine, you want to have 100% life and 100% doctrine. You need to persevere in both of those things. So, yeah, what are your thoughts about finding a balance and um, how that applies to us? Yeah, I, I think the one thing that has infiltrated the church is just the popular conceptions and the psychological treatments and other kind of things, which are are fine and good in themselves, um, because there are people who are, uh, to use the term, they're out of balance. They may be workaholics, and they're Mm -hmm. working 80, 90 hours a week, and they're neglecting other parts of their life, whether it's their physical health or their family relationships and other kind of things. And we can say that in that way, they may be out of balance, But in the Christian life, the balance is given to us in a different kind of way. 
It goes back to the very first thing that we talked about. Is Christianity a religion or is it a relationship? Uh, and the balance between those two is that uh, they're equal. We should give ourselves equally to their relationship with Christ and to follow the practices that he's given us to follow. I find myself a little bit torn. I don't want to say it's wrong to find balance, but when you say I'm going to find a balance, you sort of suppose an or between two things. I don't want to give too much to this thing or to this thing. I want to be in the middle of it. Uh, My thinking is that I want the Lord to find the balance in my life. He knows better than I do when I'm getting overworked, for example. Uh, He knows when I need to take a break. There are times when he called me into situations where I was stretched way beyond what I thought I could carry, and somebody might have said, Mike, you need to take a holiday, get some balance here, because you're really you know, deep into this stuff and you need to get away from it. But actually, the Lord wanted me deep in it at that point, pressing through and suffering some hardship. But later, he'll provide a way out. Uh, I remember somebody years ago asked, when do we take vacations? And I guess I'd say I haven't had a vacation in a long, long time, but I've had these times of refreshment and relaxation that God has provided for me but I just don't choose to take like two weeks of vacation. He knows when I need that break. And yeah. so in that sense, I don't want to be the one that determines what is the balance. I just want to be obedient and let him determine how my life is to go, and he will be the one that finds that right spot for me. It just reminds me of Psalm 23, uh, where David is talking about the Lord being his shepherd. And if you listen to the language... It's one who is being led. It's not one who is going out and finding his own pasture. The mm-hmm. Lord is his shepherd, and he leads him beside quiet waters, makes him lie down in green pastures. Uh, he restores his soul. He does all of these things. And, and in that way, it is the Lord who provides mm-hmm. what he needs. Uh, and if it's rest, he provides rest. If it's a meal, he provides a meal. If it's protection, God provides protection. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's on a path in the valley of the shadow of death. Right. That's the path that he provides yeah. for us sometimes, but he does lead us on. And I I say amen to that. And people who have listened to these episodes will know that I talk a lot about Jesus being the good shepherd and how we need to listen for his voice and follow him. Well, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up today's discussion. And I'm hoping that we'll have some talk in the future. What were some of those other talks? Oh, you know what? Why don't we let our listeners suggest a topic they'd like to hear us talk about? I think that would be great. So if anybody out there would like to hear us talk about something in particular, send me a note at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. And Glenn, I'll thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Mike. It's been great to be with you again. Good. And for all the listeners, until next time, Glenn and I pray that the Lord will continue to guide you on his paths, that you'll have ears to hear and you'll walk with him because his paths are good and they always lead to peace for the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening and God bless you all.